Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to see you today. We're so glad you're here, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Wherever you are in the world, whenever you're watching this, we are so glad you're here and hope this is a meaningful experience and hope you feel right at home uh, with us. So today we're going to continue our series, Let It Be. But uh, before we do that, I want to just remind you about next Sunday. Next Sunday, the 22nd, we will wrap this series up and we'll be doing so with guest preacher, teacher, speaker, brilliant uh, Diana Butler Bass. Diana is an author, a progressive Christian author. She is a, uh, a scholar of Christian history, and she's just an incredible, insightful, brilliant human. And I'm so excited. And she has written a book on grateful called Grateful. So she's going to come talk to us about gratitude next week as our value. So make sure you keep that uh, in mind. I'm really, really excited about that. Today, we're going to look at our value of humility. Um, I-, I wonder what comes to mind when we hear the word humble. I- I would imagine there are lots of associations that pop up pretty quickly. Um, I wonder how quickly the word humiliation comes up Um, because those two words are connected, right? To to humiliate is, it literally means to make humble or to bring low. Humiliation and humility are intricately connected. and, And for so many of us, that's sort of the way we were taught about humility. And haven't we, I think humiliation, those moments are something we all share, no matter where you're from, no matter what, we know what it feels like to just be humiliated, embarrassed. Those moments when you want to just like slither under a rock and not come back out because you're so humiliated. Sometimes when I'm having a bad day, there's this one particular video on the internet I'll go watch. And it's this video of John Travolta introducing um, the actress and singer Adina Menzel at an award show, Adina Menzel of Frozen fame, of um, oh, uh, Wicked fame, and lots of other projects. And they're at an award show, and John Travolta's job is to introduce Adina Menzel and say she's going to be singing her song from Frozen called Let It Go. That's, the, that's the, what's supposed to happen. And every time I have a bad day, I watch this because I think it's hilarious. I've been looking for years for a way to work it into a sermon, and it just finally happened. So I, I want to just play this little snippet of this video for you. Um, it, I hope it brings you, if it brings you a tenth of the joy it brings me, then you're going to have a good day. So check, check this out. And then uh, from we'll the Oscar winning animated movie Frozen, please welcome the wickedly talented one and only <laughs> Adele Dazeen. <laughs> Listen, every, every time I see it, every time. I had the same, it's like the first time I had the same sort of reaction to it. This last week I was at a coffee shop working on a sermon and I knew I was going to talk about this. So I wanted to watch the video and I watched it and I watched it and I watched it. And eventually I'm sitting in this corner all alone, shaking. I'm laughing so hard with people like the two people who are in there because of physical distancing. Uh, they, they were all like across the room looking like, what is wrong with this guy? I just didn't care. It brings me that much. You, you may not, it may not bring in that much joy, but let's just kind of take apart what happens here. John Travolta, like Greece, Saturday night fever, John Travolta. He's going to introduce Adina Menzel and he steps up to the microphone. He does, he calls her when he, it's just a brilliant, I'm sure this was written for him, but brilliant. Like, May I introduce the wickedly talented, the one and only. And then he calls her Adele Dazeen. Guys, he calls her Adele Dazeen. That is not even in the ballpark. And there is like, you can tell when he's saying it, he's like backing away from the microphone a little bit just because he knows he's about to completely butcher this. And I just wonder like, I wonder, first of all, grateful, so grateful. It brings me so much joy. 
But I also wonder, like, does he go back and watch that? Is that a moment? And there's a whole bit, like, video of him on a late night show where he's explaining what actually happened. I don't want to know. I just want to experience the pure joy of this moment. It, 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 and I'm sure it was humiliating for him at the time. It's been passed around the internet so much. And it just brings me joy. You ever had a moment like that where you do something and you feel like, I'm never going to live that down? Or I just, I, I can never show my face in public again. I can never host an award show again. You ever had that moment? So to be fair, since I'm, you know, enjoying some humor at John Travolta's expense. Let me tell you about a story of my own. So a few years ago, we were, um, we'd gone to the grocery store, we going to Kroger, and we were coming back out to the car and we were loading our groceries in the van. And um, we had three gallons of milk because back then that's what it took, you know, uh, per grocery trip to keep all the kids in milk. And so uh, we're loading it. And I decided to grab two jugs with one hand because I, I don't know if anybody else does this, but like there's something that gives you a sense of accomplishment that you can move groceries in the fewest number of movements possible. Does anybody else do that? Like you come out of your car and you got like 15 bags in two hands. Uh, anyway, I'm loading the, the gallons of milk in the back of the car. And as I do it, one just slips out of my grip and it falls. And I kid you not, this happened in slow motion. It's, it's like it fell for days and it falls and it hits the bumper and it bounces up a little bit because apparently milk can bounce and it bounces up a bit. And then it just kind of goes, goes, goes. And in slow motion, it falls and it hits the ground and the force of the contact with the ground impact explode. The lid explodes and milk goes shooting up everywhere, all over me, all over the back of the car, all over the car next to us that had temporary tags on it. It was just, and I was standing there and I could tell that Carla didn't know if she should laugh or, or what, what the appropriate response would be. And I'm just standing there. It was cold out. I'm covered in milk. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what is the next step here? What, what do I do? So I went in back into Kroger and I, for two reasons. One, I needed a new gallon of milk. And two, I wanted to tell them that I'd gotten milk all over this car. And so uh, I walk inside and I find the, the shift manager. And I tell her what happens. I'm covered in milk from head to toe. And she immediately begins laughing at me. I mean, not like... I'm trying to hold back a lot, just like full on, I'm at a comedy show, let's laugh at this guy. So then she calls over the, some of the other cashiers and employees and she tells them the story of why I'm standing in front of them covered in milk. And then they're all laughing and having a good time. And she says, I'm sorry, this has just never happened before. Like never in the history of Kroger, never, nobody has ever just accidentally dropped a jug of milk and it exploded all over them in the car next to That's never happened in the history. So I'm standing there just... And there's this sort of this moment where, uh, you know, as people are walking by and they're laughing at me, it's like you're back in middle school, right? But there's also this moment where I just end up having to laugh with them because it's really a pretty remarkable experience. We've never had that happen before. You don't really ever want to hear that in, in that particular context. That's never happened before. Um, and my gosh, I look back on that story now and I think it's hilarious. But back when it happened, I was pretty mortified at the time. Um, so this, this idea of humiliation, we've all, you, I bet you've all got stories that we passed the mic and video camera, you could tell us your stories. This idea of humiliation has really shaped our approach to humility, specifically in the Christian church, specifically in the Christian church. Those of us who grew up in a, this context, uh, specific religious context of conservative Christianity, we were taught to downplay our gifts and abilities. It, it was almost an embarrassment to be complimented for somebody to say, gosh, that song you sang, that sermon you gave, that class you led, that project you, like whatever it is, that if somebody compliments you, your only response can be, well, you know, 
It's all the Lord. The Lord deserves all the credit. Has anybody ever been in that? Well, it's not me. I'm, I just sang a song because Jesus put it in my heart, or I just gave the sermon because Jesus put it in my heart. I just did the thing because God led me to, and so God gets all the credit. God gets all the – and here's I mean, part of the issue with that. I'll never forget being um, with um, uh, uh, Philip Billy, who's a Quaker um, progressive author, pastor. And we were having dinner and somebody brought this idea up and he's like, but God didn't sing the song, but God didn't give the sermon. You, you, they did, they did, they did. And so like, are we supposed to feel embarrassed about an ability and embarrassed about a talent? That's how many of us were raised. We were, we were trained to devalue, de-emphasize um, and downplay our strengths and to emphasize our weaknesses. There is an entire, there are entire generations of people. I'm one of that the idea of sitting down to compile a resume feels almost sinful, right? Because you're having to say, here's what I'm good at. Here's what, here's the success I've had at what I've done before. Here's why I'm qualified for this position, for this job, for this opportunity. And so many of us were, were just taught to push it down and play it down, to bring it low and to not emphasize what we're good at. But humiliation isn't humility. The reality is what we often call humility is actually a rejection of who we were made to be. To be human is to be a marriage of spirit and soil. That's the way the Bible talks about it in Genesis 2, right? Where God forms the human beings from the dirt, human being from the dirt and breathes into the human being the breath of life. And the human being becomes a living being. Spirit meets soil. That's what it means to be human. We are a marriage of the infinite and the finite. The infinite is within us, and yet we know that our lives in this experience are finite. We can move mountains, and yet our existence sometimes feels really, really fragile. Right? It, it seems like we're, we're just sometimes one beat away from things going very, very differently. There's actually a psalm that expresses this tension between like that we are the spirit and soil, that we are infinite and finite. We can do these big, incredible things, and yet we're still fragile. Psalm 8, 3 through 6, the writer says, speaking to the God character, I look at your heavens, which you made with your fingers. I see the moon and stars, which you created. But why are people important to you? Why do you take care of human beings? You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You put them in charge of everything you made, right? The psalmist is expressing the kind of all we experience. I don't know, I, exp- I, I love sunsets so much. Um, I, I usually don't wanna be up to see the sunrise, but I love to see the sunset. And there's just this moment as you're looking at the sun, as it's sinking, all right, you know, the sun's really not moving, but this is how we describe it. As it's sinking low to the horizon and it just does something to us. Right? We see that we see the bigness of creation, the bigness of the universe. I mean, think about the vastness of this ever-expanding universe. There are more than a hundred billion galaxies. And here we are on our little corner of space. We are specks of dust, riding a rock that is basically a speck of speck of dust, rotating at a thousand miles per hour. And yet, so speck of dust, riding a speck of dust at a thousand miles per hour, and yet we have this sense that our lives should matter, that they should have meaning, that they should have some sort of purpose. Right? And what the psalmist is getting at is we aren't angels. We aren't disembodied spiritual beings. And we aren't animals that just kind of are, and I don't know, I love our dog, but I, I don't believe that she's necessarily out there thinking about um, what is the meaning of life in the same way we are, right? And, and there's this reality that we are some sort of mixture between the two. We are a marriage of the spiritual and the physical of spirit and soil. 
So when we de- demean our humanity, when we sort of give into the narrative that to be human is to be less than, to be flawed, to be broken, when we begin to live out of that narrative, we aren't living into the glory and honor. That's what the psalmist says, the glory and honor with which we are intrinsically imbued. You and I enter the world with glory and honor. You and I enter the world bearing the image of the divine. You and I enter the world, not broken, disconnected, and messed up. We enter the world intimately knit into the fabric of what the word God is trying to describe. That is who we are. And I think what humble people do, humble people know who they are and they know there is nothing to prove. When ego drives the bus, we are continually trying to prove that we're worthy, that we're loved, or why we should be worthy to be loved and accepted. That's, I think, in part, what narcissism is about at its core for some people is it's grounded in ultimately a fear of insufficiency. And so it's this overcompensation, right? It's, I, I feel deeply afraid that I'm not enough. I feel deeply fearful that I am unworthy. I think if anybody ever got to know me, they would not think that I have anything of value to add to the world. And so instead, I have to build this layer of protection where I just make myself seem like the most confident, important uh, meaningful. I have, to, I have to put on this sort of layer. And ultimately, when we don't feel like we know an answer or we can't defend a position or we feel inferior in the, like we have something to prove, that, that's when we actually end up living in, in the ugliest of ways, right? Have you ever, is, is, is my faith was, when my faith was more conservative, I would interact with people who would have something to say that I disagreed with. And at the time, there were moments when I didn't know why I disagreed with it. I just knew that I'd been taught it was wrong, or that this was better. And I remember feeling so angry and frustrated when people would ask questions about my faith because I couldn't talk about it I because I didn't know and I couldn't defend it. It's just what I'd been given. right? And when we feel like we're threatened by something, what do we do? We kick into this maybe, uh, yes, I'm fearful and I'm insecure, but I'm going to act like I'm the most bold, secure well-adjusted human being on the planet. We, we brag and bluster when we feel like we have to prove our value and our worth. I just imagine people who have given completely into ego, if you strip away all the outer layers, you know, like an onion, um, what you'll find is a deeply insecure human being. Somebody who feels significantly less than and unworthy. And that's probably because they've been given a narrative, whether explicitly or implicitly, that that is who they are. And that's what it means to be human. Look, it's good to know you have talents, gifts, and strengths. It's healthy to have a self-esteem that knows you have immeasurable value, which means that to live grounded in humility, which it's interesting, that word humility, it's actually connected to the word humus, which is essentially the word um, in Latin for soil. To be humble is to be connected to the soil, right? And, and, which is a great echo of Genesis 2, where the human being is dug, is created, formed, molded from the soil. So to be humble means you're, con- you're living grounded, and to be grounded in humility, excuse me, it means that you're living grounded in belonging, meaning, worth, and that we begin, when we begin to live through that place, we are no longer auditioning for the approval of other people. How much of our life is about auditioning for the approval of someone else? without ever stopping to consider, do I want to be the person that they would approve of? Do I want to trade my values? And do I want to trade the things that make me unique? And do I want to trade, uh, minimize my unique experiences? And do I, do I want to like 
get rid of all that just to get the approval of somebody else. When we aren't living our lives in a, like a frantic search for acceptance, because at the core, we know who we are. That all of those things, meaning, worth, belonging, significance, all of that is already ours. And it's ours the moment we draw our first breath, and it will still be ours the moment we breathe our last breath. Between those two moments, birth and death, nothing changes in terms of who you are, in terms of your value, and in terms of your worth. What happens between those two moments is we are fed some stories that are actually deeply counterproductive to human flourishing. Stories about how God is angry with you and disappointed with you. Stories about how you are depraved and unworthy. Stories about how that in order for God to somehow forgive you, you have to, there's all this ritual and there's all these hoops to jump through to just get back to this place where you're still not worthy, but God is. And so you, like, like that's, that theology is so toxic and it's so anti-human. And I, I've come to believe that if it's anti-human, it's anti-divine. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've been through, you entered this world drawing your first breath as a sacred gift of creation, as the embodiment of the divine. And no matter what narratives have caused you to forget that, and no matter what has sort of gotten in the way of you living into the fullness of that, when you take your last breath, that will still be true. I've shared this quote before, but I'll share it again. It's something I need to be reminded of on the regular. It's from Richard Rohr. He says, there is nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I am who I am, and it's enough. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have things to work on, right? It doesn't mean that there aren't parts of our personalities that we need to, to do some deep dive on. And I, I, look, example, I know I'm a deeply impatient person most of the time. And I actually posted on social media a couple weeks ago, I'm so ready for, I can't wait for Advent. And somebody was like, that's ironic because Advent is all about waiting, right? So I, I get it. There are parts of my personality in so many ways that I need to work on and refine and that can become better. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the essence of our humanity, that we enter this world with nothing to prove. Not to anybody, not to our parents, not to our siblings, not to our teachers, not to our bosses. We have nothing to prove. We enter this world with nothing to prove and nothing to protect. There is nothing to protect in the sense that I don't have to gra grab, 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 grapple, grab on to protect, to make sure uh, that I had meaning and value and worth. It's mine. What if we were to begin to, what if I am who I am and it's enough? What if that is a mantra that we can embrace? This, I am who I am. Yes, I've got some personality things to work on. And yes, maybe I, I've had some trauma and I've had some experiences in life and I need to do, uh, sit down and talk about that with a therapist and go through a meaningful process. of. And yes, I need to be on the journey of transformation. Who I am today is I hope not who I will be, a carbon copy of who I will be when I leave this world. But throughout that entire journey, I am accepted, I am loved, I am valued, I am worthy, I have nothing to protect, nothing to defend. I am who I am. You are who you are. And as we think about humility, we're not thinking about making ourselves low, demeaning, devaluing, and de-emphasizing our gifts, abilities, and talents. What we're thinking about is living grounded living connected with our true selves, living connected to 
who we were. I love the story of Jesus' baptism, that moment when the voice of the divine speaks out, this is my son whom I, whom I love, in him I am well pleased. I really do believe that as we enter the world, that same pronouncement is made over each and every one of us. This is my son, this is my daughter, this is the one I love and who brings me great joy and happiness. That's how I felt about my kids the first time I held them. I never looked at them and said, hey, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna, pr- prove why you should be here. What can you, what can you bring to the table? Because right now you're just like dirtying your diapers and throwing up all the time. What do you bring to the table? What significance do you add to this? No, 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 First time I held my babies in my arms, I immediately looked at them and the switch flipped in me and there was this love that came welling up. And I thought, this is the greatest human being that's ever human. And we each enter the world with that being spoken over us. And we lose our way sometimes and sometimes we get detoured and but the essence of who you are will never change. Friends, you are enough. Not the you that is auditioning for approval, not the you that is continually strategizing and trying to figure out how to get them to like you or them to approve of you or them to, no, you, at the core of who you are, the essence of you, you're enough just as you are. You are loved just as you are. You are worthy just as you are. You are a beautiful collision of spirit, in soil, embodying and displaying the divine image in the good world that God made. What would happen if we lived into that? What would happen if we began to realize, yes, I've got work to do, I need to trim, yes, absolutely. But at the essence of who I am, God loves me. At the essence of who I am, I'm beloved. At the essence of who I am, I am worthy, I'm accepted, I'm not auditioning for approval. And when we go searching for it, we're looking for something we already have. Do you ever do that? There are moments when I'm looking for my keys or my phone or sunglasses, and I've literally been looking at my phone before, and it's been in my hand. That tells you sometimes how scattered my brain can get. It's in my hand. The sunglasses were on my head, and I was looking for them all along. That's, I think, the the search for value and significance and worth and acceptance. We're looking for something that's already in our pocket. It already defines who we are. It already is our reality. So, friends, Grace Point. May we trust that this is true for ourselves and for one another. And may we begin to live from it in ways that are liberating and freeing, not only for us, but for the people around us who watch us do this work of becoming truly free and truly engaged and truly connected to who we really are, the beloved, the blessed, the the beautiful. And if we do that, maybe, just maybe, this world might begin to realize who it is, what it is, and what it's capable of doing. And then, my goodness, everything could change.